0: What would the world look like if we all pushed ourselves to have candid conversations with people who didn't look like us, think like us, or live like us? I'm Dave Hollis, and I'm on a mission to learn more about this world by meeting more of the people who live here. You may not always agree with everything you hear, but I guarantee you'll come away more informed on topics you might never have thought to seek out before. This isn't just a podcast. It's a community. And when we raise each other up, we all rise together. Kayla, first of all, thank you so much for being here and agreeing to share your story with our listeners today. I would love for you to share your story in your own words for anyone who may not be familiar with the place that you have come from.
1: Sure. Yeah. So in 2018, my husband, Andrew, who was the lead pastor of our church at the time, was diagnosed with depression. And it was really out of nowhere. You know, he had been experiencing panic attacks. And so we were trying to get to the bottom of them. And he was having them two to three times a week. And those really led to a massive panic attack that landed him in the hospital. And it was after that, that we made the appointment with the psychiatrist, we put him on a sabbatical, and we found out that he had depression. And I'll never forget um, sitting in the psychiatrist's office with him when he looked at me in the eyes and said those words, your husband has depression. And I was completely shocked, completely stunned. I never would have seen it coming. Andrew was um, driven for excellence. He was an excellent communicator. He led our church through four very difficult years when his dad was sick with leukemia. So he's a type a kind of perfectionist, um, driven, like business guy. Like, you know, he didn't want anything to get in the way of him pursuing his calling. And so for me, you know, I thought he was this invincible guy that could do anything he set his mind to. And so to hear this diagnosis come in, I was completely shocked. So we found out the diagnosis, we walked to the car, I turn and look at him and I say, how did we end up here? How did this happen to you as a pastor? How did this happen to you, and so we sought to, to to receive treatment for it. And so he was seeing a psychiatrist every other week. He was taking medication. We were seeing a therapist together for two hours every single week. We had invited family in to help us. We had three kids at the time. Our boys were two, three. And five. And so our, our two, four, and five. And so our house was very busy. And so for me, I was torn between being caretaker to my husband and then mother to our three kids. And so it was a very exhausting season, very hard summer. I never knew who I was going to get coming out of the bedroom in the morning. Would he be sad? Would he be angry? Would he be happy? Would he be present? Would he be checked out sleeping for the day? Like that's what depression looks like in our home. And so we were doing everything we knew to do. And by the end of July, that summer, the doctors actually thought he was getting better. And so they thought the next right step in his healing would be to go back to work. And so on August 1st, 2018, he hit the ground running and he gave two powerful messages on mental illness. I mean, he was sharing his own journey with depression, his own journey with anxiety. He gave out the suicide hotline number. He shared statistics from the NAMI website. Like he knew the facts he he would have known where to go to get help if he needed it and then headed into the third weekend he just had a really really bad day and the following morning while we were away you know we knew that he wasn't well his bad day was a big big wake up call for us that maybe he's not ready to go back to work you know maybe he's not as healed as the doctors and our family thought he was maybe he still needs to take a step back and and get some more healing and so while we were away making phone calls, scheduling a guest speaker for Sunday, finding like an inpatient center for him while we were away for a little tiny bit of time, he attempted suicide. And we were completely shocked, completely stunned. Like, here's this guy that just got released to go back to work, gave these two powerful messages, gave out the suicide hotline number, you know, on paper has the life of his dreams. Like he had everything he could have asked for and more, and then suicide absolutely shocking. And so he was uh, rushed to the hospital and the following day he passed away and went to be with Jesus, August 25th, 2018.
0: Oh my goodness. I'm so sorry. Wow. It's a, it's a heavy thing. My, our family has had now a couple of experiences with suicide and there is um, there's just something still so kind of taboo about it that uh, made us become more active in our wanting to have more regular conversations inside of the mental health space and normalizing things like depression or things like um, being able to talk about you know this kind of thing because it's 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 just something that like has never ever been something that people feel terribly or totally comfortable about. I wonder, you know, like you—you've leaned now into as a part of your calling in your life, advocate for mental illness and mental health. Prior to your husband having these panic attacks, were you a part of or involved in anything with mental illness, or was this just the? Nope, this is the thing I'm going to now jump into because uh, I have a story to tell and a world that needs to hear it.
1: Yeah, so I have a little bit of background. I um, earned a bachelor's degree in psychology from Vanguard University, where where Andrew and I had met, and so I know like a basic understanding of mental health and the brain. Um, and so that was my only background. And then I married him and went into ministry. And so at the time, you know, I was stay-at-home mom, supportive pastor's wife. Like I loved that. I loved my job. I loved my role. I loved supporting him. I was reading a book by Kay Warren called divine privilege about being a pastor's wife when he passed away. Like I really loved our life. And so no, I wasn't, um, in the mental health space. I wasn't a mental health advocate. You know, I, I think, um, mental illness looks so different in real life than it does on paper. Like I I knew the facts, I knew a basic understanding, but in real life, living with somebody that's wrestling with depression, it was so different. And so I think, um, you know, after he passed away, the news just spread all around the world. Our story went viral. Ours was the sad story on the internet that was being shared by people. I, I was shocked and couldn't believe it mostly the response was so positive, you know, and right away I could see how God was using our story to literally reach into the darkness that other people were walking in and pull them out and save their life. I received so many messages from people within the first week. You know, I wrote him this letter three days after he died and I posted it to our blog, um, God's Got This, that our family had already set up when his dad was diagnosed with leukemia. And so I posted this letter to him and I think it wasn't a normal response to suicide. You know, the letter, my my response to him was, I am so sorry. I am so sorry you felt misunderstood. I am so sorry you felt alone. I am so sorry this happened to you. I am so sorry. In general, so Sorry, and I think empathy and compassion isn't always our first response to suicide, and so I think that that um, really stuck with people. And I think, you know, through my grieving out loud and me processing my pain out loud through blogs and through social media, that God was able to um, help other people resonate with that pain. And so I was kind of handed the microphone in a way after he died, and I became this mental health advocate that I never asked to become and that I would have never signed up for. Like who raises their hand to sign up to write a book about suicide and mental illness and death and grief. Like I am, especially for your first book, like no one's gonna sign up to write that book. Like I don't want that story. I don't want that life. I don't wanna write that book, but I was handed a microphone and I couldn't look away because I saw how God was using our story and our voice to literally save people's lives. And who am I to get in the way of that?
0: So good. It's, it's not uh, that there is a small audience either by the way, because I was looking before we were having this conversation, one in five adults, almost 48 million people will experience mental illness in a given year. So a lot of people, many of whom may be in fact listening to this podcast will at some point during this year experience some kind of mental illness and in the midst of a pandemic obviously that kind of mental illness case count will normally end up going up as well i'm curious with the work that you're doing and the way that you've leaned into understanding mental illness better is there is there something that you think we as a society or that we as individuals ought to be doing better or differently when it comes to identifying and treating mental illness in the first place?
1: Yeah. You know, I think, um, I think we can all get more comfortable with the conversation. I think we can all lean into the conversation more. I think we can get more acquainted and comfortable with words like suicide and depression and anxiety. And I think oftentimes those words make us feel uncomfortable. And we kind of want to back away. You know, that's like the natural reaction is is not to lean in. It's to back away and say, okay, well, they're going to, they got to figure it out. And I don't, I don't know enough about that. And I'm not the expert. And so instead of backing away and backing off the conversation and staying away from those words, like, I think the best thing we can do is to lean in. If someone that we love is wrestling with depression or wrestling with anxiety or wrestling with suicidal ideation, like we can lean in. We can ask questions, like questions are powerful. Questions can change the game. If someone's struggling with suicidal thoughts, questions like, do you have a suicide plan? If you do, like when and how would you do it? What problem are you trying to solve through suicide? If someone's wrestling with depression, we can, instead of backing away and and disengaging them because they're hard to engage, we can keep engaging them. We can keep showing up. If they don't answer the phone, we can leave an encouraging voicemail. If they don't pick up the phone, we can send a text message. If they don't respond to the text message, we can keep sending text messages because chances are they're probably reading them. They just don't have the energy or not in the right mindset to respond we can show up at their door we can uber eats them some dinner like there are so many ways to love people who are hurting and it may make us feel uncomfortable but it's so worth it to crawl into that uncomfortable space that they're sitting in and to sit right beside them and to ask them the question what can I do to serve you how can I share in your suffering how can I take what you're carrying and carry some of that for you what how, how how can I be in this with you. And I think that would go a long way for someone that is sitting in that dark place and wrestling with those thoughts and feeling overwhelmed or feeling like ending their life or overwhelmed with pain, you know, it's a pain problem. Suicide and depression is a real physical, mental It's a real pain. It's a real illness. And I think um, understanding that too, that it's not something that can just be prayed away. It's not something that you can just read a book and all of a sudden you're better. It's not something that you get one prayer at church for and all of a sudden there's supernatural healing. I think that those things can happen. Um, But I think it's so gray and it's not black and white. And so we all need to have more empathy and we all need to seek to better understand and to see what life is like from their point of view.
0: So I, I love it. There's been in a, in a harder season for me, someone, uh, the pastor of, of my church, who has sent me almost every single day, a single text. And it was, what small piece of sadness can I hold for you today? Which was just such a like, what a kind thing, because, you know, as uh, you know, anyone and all of us in real time are processing some kind of sadness just to have another human being represent their willingness to help carry or share some of the load such a nice thing so i do agree like small things little notes following up consistency all those things you know for anyone who is going through a hard time especially if someone has experienced something as serious as depression working through anxiety you have also tried to serve by having written a book so your first book is it your it's first, my book? first book it is your first book so it's called fear gone wild a story of mental illness suicide and hope through loss as you said, a heavy topic to try and tackle in your first book, but it came obviously out of the most tragic and challenging season of your life uh, as you you know, are processing losing your husband. I'm curious how, as a person who's had to try and write a book before, you found the words to put on these pages in the midst of such
1: pain. Mm-hmm. Um, this book was a huge part of my healing process. For me, I kind of discovered right away that words and writing and journaling and like documenting my process was healing for me. And so, you know, I told some of my closest friends that I cried as many tears as there are words in this book. I would just sit and I would type and I would relive the events that we lived together. And I would just weep, you know, I started writing this book about six months after he passed away. And so I was right in the midst of intense grief and processing trauma and raising three little boys and walking three little boys through grief. Um, but I really felt like if I wrote it from the messy middle place of my experience, that the message would be so raw and so real and so vulnerable. And it would be so fresh for me that my hope would be that it would reach into other people's lives who are sitting in the present pain and that it would feel like they're sitting with a friend when they open up this book that really truly understands, you know? So, I mean, this book is for anybody. If you're walking alongside somebody who is wrestling with mental illness, then this book is for you. If you're facing a mental health diagnosis you never saw coming this book is for you. If you're wrestling with suicidal thoughts, this book is for you. If you know nothing about mental health in general and want to learn more, like this book is for you too. It's super practical. I didn't want to just share our sad story. I also wanted it to be practical. And so in it, I talk about what to do um, if you're wrestling with depression, what to do if you're wrestling with isolation, what to do if someone tells you they're wrestling with suicidal thoughts, like how to grieving a suicide, how to walk alongside a friend who's grieving a suicide. Like I wanted it to also be practical and not just this sad story. And it is full of hope, you know, like, I have found a way to live with the pain. And that's what grief is. It's, it's making space in your home and your heart and your life and your journey for the pain, the pain will always be there. But it's possible to build a beautiful life around it to to lean in and to hold it close and to build this beautiful landscape around that pain. And so yeah, my hope is that it would also be a vessel of hope for people and that they would know that they're not alone, no matter what they're going through, whatever kind of pain they're facing that they're not alone.
0: Such a good mindset, such a good perspective. I love it. Uh, In the book, Uh, Speaking of practical things, I know, you know, you mentioned that you're witnessing in real time in some of the way that you're chronicling your story, your husband being overcome by fear and anxiety and depression. You do get into the detail of him taking his own life. But before he did, in terms of practical stuff, you know, if there's someone who's listening right now and they find themselves in a relationship with someone who is inside of darkness, is just like really struggling in the grips of depression. Can you talk a little bit about any of the work that you did in partnership with mm-hmm. him to try and battle the illness? You know, as as he was diagnosed and was trying to work through it.
1: Yeah, I think the best thing that anybody can do if they're walking alongside somebody who is wrestling with mental illness is to treat it as a team. It has to be team, and part of that team um, are professionals, our therapists and doctors. Andrew was seeing therapist every week, the psychiatrist every other week, and then a homeopathic natural doctor as well, like monthly. And so it was doctors, it was family, we had included family in on how he was doing. And there, and there was also a few friends. Um, but I would say like, The main thing that I've learned through all of this is that mental illness needs to be treated as a team. And I wish that I would have done a better job of that. I wish that someone would have gone with Andrew to every single doctor's appointment. There were a few, probably multiple psychiatrist appointments that he went alone. And I wish I would have scheduled a sitter. I wish I would have had a family member come over so that I I could have gone with him and helped him advocate for himself. Um, I think the other thing that we can do is to be honest. And to not uh, worry about shame, throw shame out the window, like be honest, tell, tell the psychiatrist, tell the therapist how they're really doing. Don't worry about embarrassing them. Don't worry about bringing shame upon them. Like you need to be honest because you're not going to be able to get help if you're not honest with yourself and if you're not honest with the professionals. And so that's also a regret that I have. Um, Andrew shared that he was wrestling with suicidal thoughts one time. And I'll never forget sitting at the kitchen counter with him. And we were kind of having an argument about something. I was feeling exhausted. You know, here I am, like caretaker mom, I have these three kids. I feel like a single mom and doing a lot of it on my own. And I'm just exhausted. And so I was explaining to him how I felt. And his response to me was that he was up in the middle of the night all night. And he was feeling overwhelmed with what he had going on. And and the job that he was called to do that he was going to go back to soon. And he had his papers strewn about the kitchen counter. And he thought about killing himself. And my reaction, instead of response, my reaction to him was, that's the most selfish thing you could ever do. You could never do that to me and the boys. Like, you would never do that. I just took his one admission, and I just threw it out the window, and I took it off the table, and I thought, that that would never happen. <laughs> And so my other, uh, you know, just word of advice would be if someone shares their deepest, darkest thoughts with you, if someone says they're thinking about taking their own life or they're contemplating suicide, like you have to lean in, you have to get comfortable with that word suicide. I wish I would have asked him every single day after that conversation, are you wrestling with suicidal thoughts today? How's that going? You know, what can I do for you? Have you told the doctor, I wish I would have sat in the doctor's office with him and told the doctor, we didn't even tell the, doctor. I didn't tell anybody. I just put it off the table and thought that will never happen. He's overreacting. He's, you know, in emotion. We're having this like altercation like that. He's just saying that that will never happen. And so taking, um, taking those conversations seriously, I wish that I would have taken it seriously seriously treat it as a tame, take it seriously. And I also wish that I would have read more books about it. I wish I would have sought to understand, you know, I was so overwhelmed with everything else that I just didn't have space. When my kids finally went to bed at night, I would just sit on the couch and numb out. I didn't want to read a book about mental health. I didn't want to read a book about depression. I didn't want to try to engage that more because I was already so run down and exhausted, but I wish I would have. I wish I would have tried to better understand what he was experiencing.
0: So you and I share uh, this. We grew up inside of the church and uh, have church as a part of what we do in our lives. Uh, Mental illness and the church, uh, for me anyway, hasn't necessarily been something that feels like is addressed inside of church so much. And I'm curious, uh, I know as a part of some of the work that you were doing in the aftermath of Andrew taking his life, you saw some stats around pastors and um, disturbing statistics at that, and and their mental health. Can you share just a little bit about what you what you found, and if you feel like there's maybe something that could be done better or or more by the church in just making normal a conversation about mental illness?
1: Yeah, I think oftentimes the church over spiritualizes mental illness, and it's they it's seen as something that can be prayed away. If you pray more, if you spend time with God more, if you listen to worship music, if you're in your Bible more, like those thoughts will go away. Like that's from the enemy and he's just out to get you and you just need to pray. And so um, I think sometimes prayer works. And I think sometimes it doesn't like Andrew and I were praying. We were begging God for healing. We were begging God for intervention. I had the staff over at our house and they prayed over every single room. Like, Prayer doesn't always work out the way that we're hoping for. God doesn't always answer our prayers the way that we're asking, the way that we're hoping for. And so I think the best thing we can do as the church is to better understand and to see mental illness as a real physical illness, just as real as cancer, just as real as any other illness, and to love people who are in the trenches of that, just like we would love people who are suffering from any other illness. It's not something that can every single time, just be prayed away. And so, yeah, Andrew um, had a favorite book that he had read multiple times before he died. It was called Leading on Empty by Wayne Cordero. And it was from that book that I found these statistics. And, you know, I didn't pick up the book. Andrew asked me to read the book multiple times and I just did not have space for it. So I didn't pick up the book until after he passed away. And it's such a treasure to me now because it has his handwriting all over it, you know, highlighting, underlining, writing in the margins. There's like sticky notes, like it was one of his favorite books. And he really, I think he felt understood in the book. I think he didn't feel alone when he was reading that book. And throughout the book, the the um, pastor who wrote it talks about depression and talks about suicide and talks about anxiety and talks about how it is lonely at the top, at the top of any organization, you know, not just for church leadership, at the top of any organization, it's lonely. Hurtful emails find their way at the top. It's easy to point the finger and blame the person at the top. And so I think if you're on staff at a church or you attend a church, like the best thing you can do is pray for your pastor to honor your pastor. Like they were called, to that position and so giving them the respect that they deserve. And it really is like the impossible job to give this like powerful, impactful, practical message every single weekend and to also lead a staff. Our staff was like 35 people. So to also lead a staff large business throughout the week, large budget, like it's a business. So being the leader of a business and also this inspirational speaker, like it's a lot. And so I think Andrew oftentimes felt misunderstood. And so some of those statistics included things like 50% of pastors feel unable to meet the needs of the job. 90% feel inadequately trained to deal with ministry demands. 70% of pastors do not have someone they would consider a close friend and 45.5% of pastors say they have experienced depression or burnout to the extent that they needed to take a leave of absence from ministry. And I could say Andrew fell into those statistics. Like that described our life and Andrew and the job and ministry like that hit the nail on the head. And I'm sure it does for a lot of pastors. It can be very lonely and isolating and you feel like you are carrying the weight of the world and trying to be this perfect person when in reality pastors are people too they're not superhuman they're not perfect like they're just like the rest of us they're imperfect people and they're trying their best and so to have lots of grace and lots of empathy and encourage and pray for our pastors
0: One of the things that you now feel called into is the work of normalizing some of this conversation around mental illness and uh, maybe eliminating some of the myths or misconceptions that may exist around depression and suicide. I, you know, we started the conversation just acknowledging that suicide tends to be a taboo word. And I'm wondering, you know, do you have a do you have a handle on what the myths or misconceptions are that we ought to try and address or how we approach removing shame and fear around the idea of suicide so that we can actually normalize it and the kind of conversation that might afford people a chance to actually talk about it.
1: Yeah, I think one of the biggest misconceptions of suicide, one of the biggest myths is that suicide is selfish. And that was one of the most common things that people were saying to me after he died. Like, how could he do this to his family? Like, that's the most selfish thing he could ever do. I said that to him when he told me he was thinking about suicide. Like, that is one of the biggest myths about suicide is that it's selfish. And I'll never forget, you know, Andrew's psychiatrist sharing with us that 90% of suicides are impulsive. You know, it's not, it's not this selfish thing. It's this moment of intense, Overwhelming pain. I've heard it described as feeling um, trapped in a burning building that's on fire, and the only way to escape the flames is to jump out the window. Like when someone dies by suicide, they're absolutely overwhelmed with pain. And if we have not walked, you know, in in their shoes, if we have not experienced suicidal thoughts, if we have not been that close to that, then we do not understand. And so, I think removing the word the word selfish and seeing it as a pain. Problem, not something that they chose. And so I don't even see the suicide as something that Andrew chose. I think it's a tragedy and I think it's something that happened to him as the result of his underlying physical illness, his depression that he was experiencing. Another myth um, that's super common is that suicide is the unforgivable sin, that someone that dies by suicide goes straight to hell and they don't get to go to heaven. And I'll never forget um, being in the hospital and Andrew's laying on the hospital bed dying and i leaned over the bed and i whispered to my mother-in-law through my tears like will he go to heaven because i was under that that conception and like, i really thought that was true and she you know re- reminded me as i'm confident of now that our acceptance into eternity doesn't hinge on how we die hinges on our salvation and our relationship with Jesus. And so I'm so confident now that like Andrew is in eternity. He's with his dad in heaven and that that does not separate anybody from that.
0: So you are a couple years now removed from this hardest thing that's ever happened in your life. And I'm going to assume that you are still on the grieving process. It's I, you know I, To me, it's probably a process that will last for the rest of time. It's just going to feel and look differently. Uh, grief is not a linear thing. So I'm gonna assume that you have uh, good days and bad. Are there things that in the midst of you processing this grief have been so great in terms of helping you have more good than bad days and the way that people have shown up or not? And uh, are there things that, man, people tried to say that were just the totally not appropriate thing to actually help you in your healing process that maybe by sharing would keep someone from putting their foot in the mouth if they end up finding someone who's also going through grief?
1: Sure. You know, I think the best thing that I've done since the very beginning of this grief journey is that I've stepped towards the pain. I haven't tried to run away from it. I haven't tried to push it aside. I haven't tried to ignore it. Like I have stepped toward the pain. I have gone to the cemetery and sat on his plot and made myself present to that moment. I have sat and looked at and scrolled at pictures and videos on my phone often. Um, Andrew is some, someone that we talk about every single day in our home. I have pictures of him up around the house. Um, it's not something that I've tried to ignore. It's something that I've invited in. I've invited this pain in. I've um, stepped toward it and I, I, want to, I want to heal. And so I've been going to therapy. That's been super helpful for me. A big part of my journey was actually going and sitting with a therapist every single week for an hour. Um, Also writing was super therapeutic for me. And then just running to the pain in those moments where where I'm feeling it because grief does come in those waves. And so when those waves have come, I have let them come and I've let them pull me out and I've let them wash over me and I've let myself feel every bit of it that I need to feel. The anger, the sorrow, the confusion, the frustration, like I let... All of those, I welcome all of those feelings instead of trying to push them away. And so, I think that's really helped me um, just be present to my reality and not try to live in an alternate reality like it never happened and just ignore that that life that I had with Andrew. You know, that life that I had with him is such a gift. And I'm so grateful for the 10 years that I had with him. And he's been one of my greatest teachers. Like I learned so much just by being his wife and doing life with him for 10 years. And so honoring his life and talking about him and not shying away from that has been very healing for me. I think sometimes, you know, even for me, before he passed away, there's misconceptions about grief, like grief is something that you just get over. Like, oh, she she shouldn't be so sad. Like, it's been two years. She needs to move on. She needs to get remarried. She needs to be doing better. Like, she should be doing better by now. Why is she still so sad? And I think um, one of the things that's helped me so much with that, there's this illustration, I include it in the book, and it's a box with a ball and a button. The box is our life. The ball is the grief and the button is the pain. And so, when someone passes away, that ball of grief is massive. And so it's constantly bumping the pain button. And as we, as the years go by and as we move forward with our life, that ball of grief gets smaller and smaller and smaller. But the pain button, that same confusing pain, that um, pit in your stomach, overwhelming pain, will always be there and the ball of grief will always be there too. So the ball is bound to hit the button, even though it's big and it's growing smaller, it's still going to hit that button. And every time it hits the button, it's still just as confusing, just, overwhel- just as overwhelming and just as painful as the first time that it was pressed. And so I think understanding, like you said, that grief isn't linear. Everyone's grief journey is different. And so not comparing my grief journey to my kid's grief journey or to my friend's grief journey or to my family member's grief journey, like we're all on our own unique healing grief journey and that pain and that grief all looks different for each of us.
0: There's no way, you know, that anyone would wish anything like this to happen in their life. And yet experiencing hard things and going through hard seasons also can produce some good amidst the bad. I'm curious if you have reached this place of acknowledging or seeing that, man, of course I wouldn't have wanted this. I didn't vote for it. I didn't even necessarily feel like I'd ever be pulled into doing work like this, but having gone through this hard season, it's changed me or, you know, I'm, I'm speaking as much about myself in real time for having gone through something unbelievably different on a completely different scale, I'll tell you what. The last few months, I have, in processing a hard thing, seen growth and a uh, proximity to God and discipline around my health. That um, was a byproduct, in some ways, of the experience of a hard season. Have you have you been able to see the, the the silver lining or the good that comes out of having to experience impossible hard season?
1: Yeah, you know, grief grief has changed the way that I see everything. When Andrew passed away, I was handed this brand new life and I was handed a brand new set of eyes. Like everything that I see in my life, I see differently. I see my children differently. I see the future differently. I see the present differently. I see God differently. Like everything has changed. And so I'm, I am so grateful for the perspective that grief and death and pain has given me. Like all it takes is me going and sitting at the cemetery, you know, with my husband there. All it takes is me sitting there for an hour to get the perspective I need to go back home and do the work that I feel like God has called me to do. Like it's given me this perspective that life is so short like i cannot believe that my husband passed away at 30 years old it's like we are not promised tomorrow tomorrow is not guaranteed all we have is today life is so Sure. So the brevity of life is so in my face. And so I think it's really woken me up. It's like, okay, God, I'm still here. Andrew's not here, but I'm still here. And so what do you have for me? My hands are open. My palms are up. God, I surrender my life to you. What has happened to me? I surrender it to you. What do you have for me? What are you going to put in my hands? Like, What what gifts are you going to give me through grief? And You know, God has been so kind to us. God has taken care of us. And I've seen his kindness and his generosity in the way that he takes care of widows, like so clearly in my grief journey. And there've been so many, little tiny miracles and big giant miracles that God has done for our family. So it definitely has changed the way that I see God and expanded my view of God and spirituality and how I function now with this other half of me in heaven. Like, you know, when Andrew and I were married, we were one. And so he passed away and now half of me is in heaven. I have one foot here and one foot in heaven. And so it's like this way different perspective and so I'm grateful at 31 years old to have that perspective and I think that it will change the way that I live the rest of my life and it's and it's lit a fire in me um, to continue the good work that God started after Andrew passed away.
0: So you have three boys. I know in the book that you share several stories about how amazing a father Andrew was and how much he loved them. What do you hope that they know about their dad?
1: That he fought really hard to stay. You know, I hope that one day when they're able to read this book or we're able to read the book together, or they're able to listen to me, read it to them through the audiobook, Like I wrote this book for them. Suicide is so confusing and processing a parent's death by suicide. Like I know that's a lifelong journey for them and, and it's going to be confusing for them and it's going to be hard for them. and And thankfully right now they're little. So it's not, it's not a hard conversation. You know, it's more a matter of fact right now. So it's going to be this ongoing conversation as they grow up. But my hope is that they read this and they see how hard their dad fought to stay. He really did fight to stay. I mean, we were really doing everything we knew to do to get him better. And he was trying really hard. And that this shouldn't have happened, but it did. And even though it did, like we... Kept going, and and God took care of us, and so you know I hope that um, this book helps them process suicide, that it gives them the tools that they need to see suicide from a different lens, and not see see suicide as something that's selfish or something that their dad chose. That they're able to grow empathy and compassion in their heart for their dad. So I wrote this book first and foremost for them, and I um, will be so honored to sit down with them one day and read it with them.
0: Um, it'll be. It'll be amazing and part of their healing journey as much as anyone else's. There's something so beautiful about your willingness to share the intimate details of your journey in the hopes that other people might see themselves in your story to create some connection empathy-wise or make it maybe a little more normal that they, the reader, whoever they may be, are not alone in experiencing the thing that they are going through. So good work. I'm, I, I'm uh, grateful for your willingness to Follow the call and, um, and, and do the work of, of putting hard words on pages, but important words at that. I'm curious, uh, hope uh, is a thing that I've been having many a conversation about inside of uh, hard seasons. Uh, we have uh, said this before inside of our business that uh, you have to create plans so that hope in and of itself isn't a strategy, but I've found in the midst of this processing of grief that hope for me has definitely been a strategy because of needing to against the backdrop of being handed a blank piece of paper that I am now trying to create the future version of my life against. Uh, if I can have some hope in the pinning of that, you know, now not blank piece of paper, uh, I can create a, a greater story. And obviously you were also handed this blank piece of paper and had to yourself figure out what ends up being next. What's the rest of your life going to look like Talk to me a little bit about hope and how hope in the midst of grief uh, is a thing that you have to still find a way to stay connected to to survive.
1: Yeah, there's a little um, mantra that I have for myself and my life in this season, and it's rebuilding beautiful. And so I had this beautiful life with Andrew. And when he died, that beautiful life died with him. And so now I was handed, like you, this brand new life that I did not choose. And so I am rebuilding beautiful. And so for me, that hope is that one day I'll be able to step back and look at the life that I've created since Andrew's death and see that it's beautiful. It's the hope that one day I will call my life beautiful again, that God is going to give us beautiful and whatever shape and form that is, you know, it's the hope that like, I'm still here. And so he's not done yet. And he has more for me and he has more for my boys and he can use this for good. And it's the hope of heaven. It's the hope that this is just the first inch. This is just the first little bit of life. And, you know, eternity is waiting for us forever. And so reminding myself of that, of that, like, this is going to go by so fast. And this season and this pain and the trenches of grief and the trenches of processing a death of a loved one by suicide, like this is going to go by so fast. I'm going to blink. And before I know it, I'm going to be 80 years old and and be able to look back on my life and see all that God has done. And so I think uh, when we're grieving, you know, it is, it's holding hope in one hand, it's holding the pain and it's also holding joy and sorrow and hope. And we have to have enough hope to keep moving forward. Hope is what gets us out of bed the next day. It's the hope that things can get better and that we're still alive. There's still breath in our lungs and God's not done with us yet. And he has more for us.
0: I am so grateful that you were able to hang out today and have this conversation. I know that it's something that will touch many a listener. uh, Each episode of this Rise Together podcast, I am asking guests if they could leave our listeners with one actionable goal or one piece of advice that they can take away from this conversation? I don't mean to put you on the spot, but if there was a single thing that you might offer to this audience, uh, what might it be that they could do today that might change the way they approach their life?
1: You know, I think that's something, another little phrase for me that's been powerful on this season is, is more empathy. And I think all of us can choose to have more empathy. We can choose when someone's sharing something with us, we, we can all choose to step back and 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 sit and listen and have our ears open and lean in and not be thinking about what we're going to say or how we're going to react, but to sit with them in their pain and listen and share in their suffering and to respond with a heart of empathy and so more more empathy is something that we can all do in all areas of life, just trying to really see each other, look each other eyeball to eyeball and truly see each other and truly try to discover what it's like to live in other people's shoes.
0: You cannot have enough empathy. I am here for it. It's the reason why this stinking show exists, trying to bring people who maybe have had a different life experience into your earbuds, your, your headphones in an attempt to uh, maybe change the way you think about Everyone and anyone. So, thank you, Kayla, for being here. I so appreciate it. If uh, a listener is interested in getting to know you better and following you and getting a copy of your book, where in the world do those things exist?
1: Yeah, my book will be available September 8th, wherever books are sold. And the best way to find me is on Instagram. My Instagram handle is Kayla Stick.
0: Excellent. Well, we will put a link to your Instagram and to your book inside the show notes so that if people are interested in picking them up or following you, they are able to. I so appreciate you being here today. Thank you for sharing your story. I know it's gonna touch many, many listeners and uh, as the book comes out, many, many, many more lives around the world. So thank you and I appreciate you so much for being here today. Thank you to you, the listener, for being here for another episode of the Rise Together podcast. Join us next week for what will be another great conversation. If you like this episode, do me a favor, take a picture, put it up on your social media, tag Kayla and I. Let us know that you uh, enjoyed this conversation and we will see you next week. Rise Together is hosted by me, Dave Hollis. This show is produced by Chelsea Harfouche and edited by Andrew Weller with production support by Sterling Coates. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. Rise Together is a product of the Hollis Company.